From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Van Shee, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help with this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. But before I introduce our guest and topic for today, allow me to introduce my co-host, Joelle Mitchell. How are you today, Joelle? I, um, do you remember last week when I mentioned that your um, fantasy football trophy would be like a good bludgeoning weapon? Yeah, I, I did. I think I recorded yeah. that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I reflected on that and thought that maybe I've been listening to um, too many murder podcasts. Yeah. Um, so I've started listening to the Happiness Lab instead. Okay, yeah, with Laurie Santos. Yes. Yep. Um, so I was listening to that on my drive-in this morning and it was an episode about gratitude and all of the good things that gratitude can do for you. And I'm driving along feeling very positive and then drove past somebody who was sort of halfway in and out of the lane and I'm like, Oh, good one, stupid head. What do you think you're doing? So, you know, it comes and goes. <laughs> yeah, Stu- yeah. Stupid head is not actually what I said. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who think that Joelle's dark and moody on the podcast, just wait till you meet her in real life. <laughs> no, she's she's amazing. <laughs> Most of the time. <laughs> he's, he's, he's saying that because of the bludgeoning thing. <laughs> <laughs> the weapon is still in the office. So. All right, look, uh, I'd now like to introduce our guest for today. Uh, He's a registered psychologist who has significant experience in health and safety. He's recently published a book called Next Generation Safety Leadership from Compliance to Care. He is the director and principal consultant at GIST Consulting. He is, of course, Clive Lloyd. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Joelle. There's nothing like a bit of bludgeoning to start a podcast. I always say that. Too many murder mystery podcasts, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. it's It's great because uh, I was catching up on your podcast so I was listening to a few and uh, one that I really sort of enjoyed was with Jennifer Lowe recently one was brilliant and again that one started off with some beautiful dark humor um, <laughs> keep it going I'm a huge fan of dark humor yeah we could just do we, we have uh, floated the idea of doing an after dark special uh, of the psych health and safety podcast we, yeah where we just sort of get get drunk and worse <laughs> <laughs> yeah we won't talk about any health up that one right now <laughs> climbs down <laughs> yeah the the three sykes uh and 10 beers yeah, podcast need but. to be yeah 10 at least 10 <laughs> yeah all right clive um so it sounds like you've been listening to our podcast what other things do you like to listen to so look, I, I, there's loads of good podcasts uh, i must admit most of the ones i listen to are safety related um, I think probably as a favourite, I guess that would be the one I keep going back to and listening to the most because there's plenty I sort of listen to one or two and don't necessarily listen to them all. If I was to nominate a favourite that I keep listening to, that would be The Safety of Work by David mm-hmm. Probe and Drew mm-hmm. Ray because uh, that's the, the nerd in me, right? That's the research nerd. And they, those guys just do so much work for us in terms of keeping up with current research. Um, I used to be reading journal after journal and, and now I just kind of wait for their podcast. So that's brilliant. These others, I like the Hop Nerd, um, Sam Goodman. Um, that's always worth a listen. Uh, another one, Colin Nottage, who runs the beautifully titled Sensible um, Health and Safety podcast. That's a great one. But there's a bunch of them. Um, incidentally, there's at least I don't know of that many podcasts that focus more on uh, psychological health and safety. So yours is is a breath of fresh air. Um, and certainly, I'm going to be listening to that one because uh, I, I could be wrong. You guys might be able to let me know, but I'll. I, haven't found that many psychological health and safety podcasts. None, none that we're aware of. Yeah. I'd, we're not, we're certainly not going to advertise them here. If they- <laughs> <laughs> Joel's not competitive at all. No. Well, I mean, the reason we're doing it was because there was nothing like this that, that, that existed, right? Yeah. It'd be silly duplicating someone else's effort. So, mm, yeah. Yep. Okay, Clive, um, you've had a really interesting career. So please tell us and our listeners all about it. Look, I'm old, so obviously it's a very long career, Joel, so I don't know where you want me to start. Uh, But it it has been interesting, and I think possibly one of the most interesting aspects of my career is is one that you wouldn't know about. 
Um, and, and so let me start there. I can go very quickly. And by the way, just come in, guys. If you need me to go like five years ahead, just, just let me know. Just say, go five years ahead, Clive. Um, so drugs and alcohol have actually shaped my career to a great degree. Um, and I should probably tell you more about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, in that, before I became a psychologist, my career before that was actually as a touring musician. I was a session musician. And um, naturally, um, in touring musicians' lives, drugs and alcohol, they're, they're out there, they, they play a fairly big part. I was exposed to that and people using a lot of drugs and alcohol, a lot. Um, I, I managed to sort of scrape through. I think um, I, I didn't sort of get caught up in the whole drug thing. I think I feared that I'd like them too much or something, but anyway, didn't do that. But I was the sort of guy who um, even hardened musos would come to um, when they were having problems. Um, and that's, that was my life, really. People would come, I'm one of those people that come, people would come to, to talk about problems and hassles. So I did one tour in particular. I'll get to psychology soon, I promise. I did one tour with a very well-known um, ACDC tribute band. I'll bet you never thought you were going to talk about ACDC in one of your podcasts. But anyway, finished that tour, didn't finish up well. Um, and I remember sitting on a beach after that tour with very little money in my pocket, really bad hangover, thinking, nah, <laughs> I've got to be doing something else. And it was literally a process of sitting on a beach for a couple of days, weighing up what I wanted to do. And of course, uh, I, I do like people, believe it or not. And um, this notion that people came to me, I thought, well, shit, might, might as well get paid for it. So my notion was I would be a, become a counsellor. And this is my naivety at the time. I thought counsellors, you had to be a psychologist to be a counsellor. Um, and in hindsight, I could have probably saved myself three years of study and just done a three-year um, counselling degree. Anyway, um, I drove off to Griffith Uni and pretty much said, I'm here to be a psychologist. What do I do? And they explained there was a whole process to go through. Let me speed it up. So I loved psychology. Um, absolutely, still do. It's a great discipline um, until the first stats course came along. <laughs> and literally, guys, uh, in my first statistics class, I did actually put my hand up and say, am I in the right room? They were talking about probabilities and anovers and multiple regression. I thought, this, this is not what I signed up for. But anyway, one of my biggest um, delights was finishing honours year with an HD in stats. Wow. Congratulations, yeah. Clive. Yeah. Oh, that was a big switch. The only exam I ever failed at uni was first year stats. And so yeah. I, I just had to work hard at it. Anyway, moving along a bit in time here, we just lost four years. I um, did my clinical placements because clinical psych was what I wanted to really do um, in drug and alcohol rehabs. Funnily enough, it just appealed to me to actually start working drug and alcohol um, as I was doing my clinical PhD, which I did all of the clinical training, as I was mentioning off air um, and clinical placements, finished all that. My research project was also in drug and alcohol, which is yet to be finished. <laughs> and reasons that I bailed from drug and alcohol. But anyway, um, I became employed soon after all the placements. That, uh, and this is a tip for maybe people who are studying now and doing placements. Um, the placements I was at at uni ended up offering me a job. And uh, I went through drug and alcohol counselling roles. I ended up being the clinical director of a, a, a big rehab on the Gold Coast and the deputy director of the Gold Coast Drug Council. So I did a lot of time in that role. Uh, and unfortunately, in that role, the nature of addiction is that as the leader of that organisation, then I was having to sit down with a mum and or a dad and explain to them why their sons and daughters were never coming home again. Right? They, they were dead, um, usually from a drug related incident, often an overdose and so forth. And you, you guys would notice how difficult, how brutal those conversations are. Um, and so, look, after a while, I was also doing private practice and specialising in grief counselling. And in, in that process, I started getting phone calls from EAP providers. Um, and by the way, I knew nothing about safety then. It wasn't even a thing for me. Uh, I was working in clinics, not high risk areas, but all of a sudden now I'm being dragged out kicking and screaming almost to mine sites or oil and gas plants who, who lost somebody uh, through a workplace incident. And so that was my first look at high hazards, mostly mining, oil and gas and gas and construction. And I was there now to do counselling with, with team members, with managers and with family members after the, the loss of somebody there. And again, I, the thing that blew me away the most was how frequently that happens. All right? we, we do that about 190 times in Australia a year. 
Um, you can multiply that number by seven for the amount of people who are permanently disabled. So it's still obviously a terrible amount. And I still do that sort of work, by the way, as a way of giving back, because my, my belief back then was very quickly, these people need all the support they can get after an event like that. But after doing quite a few of those discussions, um, it struck me that organisations were bringing people like me in after the event. They were doing all this humanistic stuff, if you will, after the event. And by the way, the same day that I'm there counselling, press releases were going out saying things like, um, you know, as you all know, our safety is our people, uh, our people's safety is our highest priority. And I'm thinking there's shit, shit doesn't seem that way to me. But anyway, then I started looking at what happened the other end, because that became my curiosity. Now I'm sick of doing this end. What's happening the other end? What, what are you doing to actually lead people safely to, to bolster psychological health and safety? Because from a clin clinical point of view, there wasn't much of that going on, I've got to tell you. And what I noticed very quickly was some of the ways they were leading safety and leading in general, but especially safety, was nothing that I knew of best practice for actually engaging people, um, dealing with stressful events, um, actually getting people to buy in to the, the safety protocols they were doing. They, they had their own language in safety that I picked up back then that they don't necessarily use in any other part of the organisation. Uh, things like violations, offenders, safety audits, safety officers. Um, you know, it struck me, who doesn't love being investigated by an officer hmm. uh, and being labelled a violator? And uh, they were doing all this radical behaviourism, you know, literally um, giving people cash rewards for going X amount of time without a lost time injury. Uh, literally incentivizing non-reporting. Uh, and they're still doing that, by the way. And this might be harsh for some psychologists listening, but amongst my own group of psychologists, none that I actually know well would use radical behaviorism as a modality of choice, um, unless they're training their dogs, you know. Um, and yet companies still use radical behaviorism a lot. Uh, and so all this was going on. So I was invited by a consultancy that we were talking about off, off air to join. And back then, by the way, I was really kind of snobbish, right? I thought these bloody org psychs, they're out there making all this money and you know, us clean psychs are doing all the real work and things like that. Uh, but anyway, I, I looked at this, um, this group of people and they're actually a really great bunch of guys and girls doing what I thought at the time was great work. Now, don't forget, I knew nothing about safety, but I did know about clean psych. And um, I shared my view of the program that they were running. And I was um, even invited to actually rewrite some of the leadership program, uh, which I did with relish. Um, and so look, I did that for quite a while, quite a while, actually, about six or seven years. Then I left there and became a bit of a hired gun for other organizations that were doing work in similar fields. Now, I was learning as I went from leaders, from organizations, what worked and what didn't. And in the end, I couldn't really do that anymore because when you do a program for another consultancy as a hired gun, you've still got to kind of say what they say because it's their program. And increasingly, I was in disagreement with many aspects of their programs. A lot of it was great stuff, but a lot of it to me, I couldn't agree with anymore based on research, based on evidence. And also my own experiences, things like Zero Harm. Um, you know, one of the programs I was working with, their whole program is called the Zero Incident Process, which seemed really philosophically great at the time. And now I couldn't be further away from that. So it just didn't fit anymore. So um, 2011, we're jumping ahead, guys. I'm, I'm getting there. Uh, 2011, actually a big year in Australia for safety. That was the year that Sydney Decker first started talking in terms of um, safety differently. And I'd been thinking in those terms anyway. So it was all of a sudden, wow, other people are talking about this stuff. Um, it was also the year that I formed um, GIST Consulting. I think I met Joel then in the following year, one of my first things in Sydney. And looking back, I must have talked a lot of crap at that one because things have changed a huge amount. I'm happy to say that, by the way, Joel. Um, it was also the year uh, a study came out. And I'm a bit of a nerd, right? I, I do like the research. And a study came through ANU from Gunningham and Sinclair. And it was done in coal mining, but it was such a good, robust study. I think, you know, I certainly extrapolated the results to other industries because it made sense to me based on my own experience. But one of their um, concluding paragraphs was brilliant uh, to the point where I can actually say it now without even reading it. And it was, unless the mistrust of the workforce can be overcome, even the most well-intentioned 
and sophisticated management initiatives will be treated with cynicism and undermined. Now that fitted my experience absolutely beautifully um, and that actually formed part of the foundation for our, our sort of flagship program, if you like, the, the Care Factor program, which we'll get to later. Um, so shortly after that, yeah, I formed that, uh, I built that program called the Care Factor program um, and just started rolling it out. And we've been doing it now for, as the flagship program, there's plenty of other programs that flow from it for about now 10 and a half years. Um, mostly in Australia, but internationally too. And uh, yeah, that's sort of how it all came about and, and still doing it, still loving it. Good stuff, Clive. Now, um, I recall um, back in 2012, um, the so it, it, on your very fancy screen behind you there, um, it says that GIST stands for Grow Your Safety Thinking. Um, that was not what the acronym stood for uh, back then in 2012 in the yeah. uh, promo um, merchandise that you were handing out. <laughs> yeah, and look, this, of course, back in 2012, Joel, I was incredibly unprofessional. and <laughs> I really loved it. I thought it was great. Yeah, and look, unofficially, um, it's still known as that, a little bit more officially. Well, where it came about, I can't remember if I shared this at the time in 2012, but it came about uh, before we'd actually named the company. I was just, you know, just a, a freelancer, if you like, but I was in a cab one day going to a conference and the cab driver said, you know, as they do, uh, so what do you do? And I, I told him sort of what I did in fairly lengthy terms. As you can guess, I can talk a fair bit. And by the time we got to the destination, he summarised it beautifully for me. He said, sounds like you help people get their shit together, eh? <laughs> I thought, there you go. That's what we'll call it. Um, now, of course, what I've learned is you kind of have to be a bit more professional. We're dealing a lot with key decision makers and CEOs and CFOs. And that wasn't really <laughs> um, probably the best thing. So Tanya, my partner in life and business said, just maybe grow your safety thinking would actually, it fits well and it's probably a little bit more professional, Clive. You know, come on. <laughs> I, I, look, when I saw that it had changed, I was genuinely disappointed. But, you know, Tanya's probably got a good point. Yeah, deep down I'm disappointed too. But I call it that whenever I can, you know. I'm glad. <laughs> no, I used to work as a gun for hire for another consultancy who had an acronym and uh, around the traps it was known as bullshit services. But um, there you go. <laughs> um, no, maybe not. We're going to have to tick the explicit box on. Yes, we are going to have to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hey, Joel, you started this. How, 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 it's my fault. How externally locust of me, though. How externally locust of me to blame you for that? <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm happy to take the blame for that. I do swear the most in the office anyway, so. Yeah, yeah. We, we do talk about Joel having the most uh, swears per pound. Okay, Clive, so recently you've published a book um, and given your backstory, it's probably becoming a bit more apparent why you chose to write that. You want to tell us a bit about it? Yeah, um, look, it's, it's, I guess, a summary of what I've learned over the last um, 15, 20 years. Um, not a long summary either. It's, it's been noted that it's not an overly long book. Um, which most people seem to like, actually. So it was very much aimed, I thought carefully about who I wanted to aim the book at. And it was not um, commentators, um, academics and so forth. There's plenty of those books out there and that's what people were letting me know. Um, some of the great safety, well, they are great books out there though. They kind of read in very dry academic ways, a little overly so perhaps. And what I wanted to write was really plain language for, uh, for leaders, and people have also said you could probably take the word safety out of it. It's probably just a safety book. But um, my public publisher then said, how will your target audience know who it's for? Fair point. Yeah. So we kept that in. Um, so yeah, a, a fair summary. In terms of what I've learned, um, it's, it's usually lumped in, I guess, with the new view approach, if you like, the, the safety differently, safety too. Even though I'm not attached to a particular model in that area. Um, but for me, it's, it's really a book about trust. Uh, and why oh, I guess I'm an advocate for the new view, particularly safety differently, not so much safety too, but safety differently is because that approach um, really relies on and is good for um, helping organisations to start bringing their people in, to start asking them um, how they believe work should be organised and, and so forth. And really, it is a book designed to first up make the case for change. And I believe myself, I believe it actually does that quite well. The opening chapters actually make a case for change quite strongly, evidence-based, research-based. The rest of the book then is essentially how to do it uh, as leader. How do you create the sort of climate within your team 
where people feel trusting enough to bring themselves to work, um, their whole selves, if they want to. And I think that's an important distinction. We don't expect everybody to bring their whole selves to work. That's kind of unethical, I think. Um, to share mistakes, to share ideas. Um, and so literally the book is about that. And it's built on that because to me, that is the biggest single thing that's been lacking in organisations. They've got lots of policies, procedures, systems, tools, engineering, PPE, all of that stuff, yet they still keep killing people and hurting people. And, uh, and for me, and the evidence would sort of go my way on this, largely because um, they haven't done the work up front in creating the sort of, sort of climate where people can actually do all of the stuff they say they want them to do. So that's intrinsically what the book's about. Uh, how, I, or how I came about writing it, a few reasons motivated. Once, uh, one thing was I was sick of going to conferences where other keynote speakers were, um, their last slide before they finished would be their book, right? Oh, oh wow, that's nice. Um, I do mine, of course, and there's no such slide. I'd get off the stage and people would say, so Clive, you got a book? <laughs> frankly, I just hated saying no. <laughs> so I thought I'd better bloody write one. Um, and so, um, yeah, I had a little bit of time up my sleeve. And the, the interesting thing is here, just fitting in the time to write a book. Um, we're, you know, we, we were very, very busy. I finished it. I sent it all off to the publishers. They sent it back to say, just, you know, fix your typos up and all that sort of stuff. Did all that, got rid of it. It's gone to print and then COVID hit. Mm. It was like I had three months where I could have just made the book three or four times as long. Uh, maybe it wouldn't have been the same book then anyway, but um, so those are some of the reasons I wrote it. I was also pretty annoyed still. Uh, there's a bit of anger in the book. Um, uh, people have let me know that did come through just in terms of why some organisations seem to be so resistant to change and they keep banging on about the same stuff, keep doing the same stuff, even though um, they use all the familiar platitudes that we've all heard. Um, your safety is our highest priority. Our goal is zero harm. And yet they then create fear in the workplace. And frankly, you can't have both. If you create fear in the workplace, forget zero harm. I mean, you should forget that anyway. Um, but forget even your people for a moment thinking that you mean it when you say safety is the highest priority. So I do sort of tackle some of those things and I, I, I don't hold back. Yeah, that's good. We, we uh, <laughs> like it when people tell it straight. Um, might be my Dutch background coming out. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, look, I, I think it's so important that trust and, you know, we've seen uh, some of our own clients or people that we've worked with who've wanted to jump straight into a hazard assessment um, for, you know, psych hazards and, you know, without doing the groundwork, as you say, and, you know, people just go, why are you collecting this information? What are you going to do with it? Like, we can't trust you. You're just going to use this to try and get rid of people or to restructure or something like that. So um, like you say, you've got to do the groundwork. There's no easy way to do this. Yeah. Totally. Um, and I, I've seen many psych health and safety initiatives. Uh, back to the quote I used earlier, hey, um, even very well-intended ones and possibly even sophisticated ones, um, literally um, undermined and treated with cynicism because they didn't do that groundwork first. Uh, and people will be naturally suspicious, um, particularly if they've done a survey previously and then management didn't even, and this happens, they, they surveyed the entire workforce, didn't even talk about the survey results. No, that doesn't happen, Clive. <laughs> <laughs> but what we have done is you'll notice in the kitchen area now there's a huge fruit bowl. Uh, and we've actually got a lot of discounts on gym membership. Um, and so we've listened to you um, and the workforce said, <laughs> clearly you haven't. Uh, clearly you haven't. So you've got to do the work up front. And why wouldn't you? Because if you don't do that work up front, frankly, um, from the quote I mentioned now twice, Anything that you do, any initiative that you put in place, you've just blown your dough. Yeah. <laughs> and like with physical safety, um, people will bring, I don't know, DuPont or somebody or a shiny new BBS program, literally blow three or four million. Uh, they get the immediate sugar hit, of course, which is either regression to the mean um, or simply because people's focus obviously is put on safety for a little while because of the, the rollout of a program. And invariably, if they haven't done the work up front, it will just go back to what it was before. Uh, no different in the psych health and safety space. Um, all of the well-intended, often the well-intended initiatives uh, will have no lasting impact uh, unless you've actually got that up front, unless you've got the trust up front. 
Yeah. Mm. Um, interestingly, um, a place that I used to work, um, the, the communal fruit bowl actually ended up becoming a source of conflict um, in the workforce because somebody took the last banana and I wanted that last banana and how dare you. Um, so, yeah. That's a sarcasm in itself. It isn't is, it, it yeah. is, yeah. yeah. What is it? The, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> and bananas by the sounds of it. <laughs> bananas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, Clive, can you tell us a bit more about fear and trust? Yeah. So one of a couple of the key areas actually I talk about when I'm putting the case for change up front, um, I do talk about what I call the fear loop. So in our program, we do talk um, cognitive psychology, of course. So we talk about um, the framing process and leading to this notion of self-fulfilling prophecies and how um, I, I call it the fear loop because it essentially is um, a, becomes anyway a self-fulfilling prophecy and again this is where the overlap maybe with with the safety differently approach comes in comes down to some fundamental assumptions that leaders make and one of those fundamental assumptions still is that are, are people really are the problem and when we go in with that fundamental assumption, of course, what we end up doing, and it's hard to do otherwise, is focusing, therefore, on our people's behaviours. Um, when they're being good, and listen to the patronising language here, when they're being good, we'll reward them, as I mentioned before, maybe, you know, a cash bonus or or more, more frequently these days, we've gone, I don't know, 30 days without a lost time injury. So we'll have a little barbecue and um, give you some trinkets, a little cap and a keyring, do all that. But for the bad behaviours, for the violators, for the offenders, well, naturally, there's going to be punishment for that. And so when you're focusing on behaviours and what ends up happening amongst the workforce is we create fear, fear of the punishment, as it were. And even where you create motivation, maybe it's, it's probably just extrinsic motivation. We're doing this for the reward. So how that sort of keeps going around is that you end up with um, no learning. People are too afraid to speak up because fear is going up, fear is going up. And when, when fear goes up, trust comes down. So we don't tend to learn. And what we create is extrinsic motivation. Now, these tend to be the, uh, the, the model I used in the book, these sort of more apathetic and reactive cultures or climates, if you like, they hurt way more people. Now, of course, when they hurt, hurt more people, there's your self-fulfilling prophecy. Why do these people get, keep getting hurt? because they don't follow procedures, because they don't listen to instructions, because they're taking shortcuts. Our people are the problem. And this just goes round and round and round. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So for me, where you've got high fear, you have low trust. And later in the book, when we're talking about how to do this differently, we talk about the trust loop, which is also a self-fulfilling prophecy, different fundamental assumption. And that is a very safety differently speak here, but fundamental assumption of people are you know, the solution. Understanding that we have, um, you know, limitations in our conscious mind, we all forget stuff. Um, you know, we want to take shortcuts, we're wired to do that stuff. But fundamentally, people are the solution, because within our people lie answers to many of the questions that we have. And what that tends to drive, rather than just a focus on behaviour, that tends to drive inquiry, asking great questions. It also builds relationships. It's focused on building relationships by bringing our people in, getting them to tell us the, the, the ways forward, the answers to questions. What that builds, of course, instead of fear, that builds a sense of, well, builds relationship, it builds inquiry, it builds trust. The more we have that, we have people feeling, at a team level, of course, Amy Edmondson would say, that builds psychological safety. To me, the differences between trust, by the way, and psychological safety are way overblown. Um, to me, psychological safety is nothing but trust experienced at the team level. That's really what it comes down to for me. I know Amy would agree, and that's fine. Um, so what we've got here is uh, a team with intrinsic motivation who feel totally involved in decision-making processes, largely actually have been involved in writing some of the, or at least co-writing policies, procedures, systems, tools. And magically, if they've been involved in their development, they will tend to have more ownership of them. If they have more ownership of them, they're more likely to use them as intended. They will tend to hurt more, uh, less people. And of course, when that happens, we tend to, well, it tends to just, um, again, be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Why are we getting these good results? Well, because our people are the solution. That goes round and round too. The funny thing is I've seen both of those loops, a fear loop and a trust loop within the same organisation. Uh, and sometimes even within the same site, maybe one particular mind site, um, where perhaps predominantly the fear loop is present 
but almost without exception, you'll get these little areas, these pockets of brilliance, if you will, where this team here, they're operating on high trust. And I'll often put this to senior leaders. What's that about? What is the difference? And invariably, it's where that particular leader or leaders um, have actually just been able to create that level of trust within their own teams. And if they can do it, my argument would be, let's all do it. So the relationship with fear and trust I've learned over the years, and again, the research is quite clear on this, uh, where you have high levels of trust, you will have low levels of fear, and fear in terms of speaking up, um, getting involved, admitting mistakes and so forth. Mm. I've, yeah, I've definitely seen that that sort of um, similar pattern as well, where you have a site that tends to be characterised in that fear loop, but you do sort of see those teams that are really high performing and it's it's absolutely all about the relationship that the that the leader has built with that team and, and the trust that they have in actually um, knowing that they're going to have the support of their leader you know, regardless of, of what's going on. So um, I think hopefully that um, that resonates with with most people who have been to any sort of a, um, a high hazard site and have seen that, um, those kinds of, of distinctions happening there. So you've talked about fear. What about active mistrust in the workforce? What, what can that cause? Uh, um, people arguing over bananas for one, Joel. <laughs> But really, it's just destructive um, almost entirely. Um, there's nothing wrong with healthy scepticism, and by the way. Um, you, you want the black cappers to a degree, but in order for your people to speak up and to question leadership, again, they need to feel trusting that if they do question something, they're not going to get shot for it, essentially. But active mistrust, again, the, the words I used before, they literally lead to cynicism and actively undermining anything that we put forward. So again, by all means, put forward your fruit bowls or your perhaps more sophisticated psych health and safety initiatives. Um, not only will they not gain traction, they'll be literally actively undermined where people um, have active mistrust. They will seek to actually um, move away from um, opportunities for the company to, to move forward in a, in a maturity fashion. Secrets are kept. Um, and you cannot fix a secret. I keep saying that within organisations. You cannot fix a secret. You cannot change what you won't acknowledge. And where there's, it, there's active mistrust, there will be a lot of secrets kept. Um, there will be us and them, us versus them, actually. Um, so it's not only affecting physical and psychological health and safety. It affects the bottom line. It affects things like um, new ideas, innovation. Uh, it affects the bottom line in terms of profit. No organisation is going to work as well as that, as it could while we have mistrust actually um, running rampant sometimes in the workforce. I'll give you an, uh, an example just from a, um, a, a little while ago. I won't say the exact time, otherwise some of my clients might know who I'm talking about. But I was at a, a mine site and um, yeah, overall the culture wasn't great. But on this one team in particular, I was working with the crews on this occasion, not the leaders. So I've given the attendance sheet out at the beginning and um, the guys are sitting there with folded arms, hey. Um, I, I pride myself on being able to create trust and engagement very, very quickly. Um, we've gotten very, very good at that over the years. Um, anyway, this group, after a quarter of an hour, they're still sitting with folded arms and sort of looking down. I'm thinking, this, this is kind of unusual. So anyway, the, the, they reluctantly filled in the uh, attendance sheet. It's come back to me. And I've looked at it, 16 people in the room, 10 of them, where it says, what is your role? They've written down knuckle draggers. <laughs> I kid you not, right? 10 of, the, uh, 10 of the 16 have written knuckle draggers. So anyway, that led me very, very quickly to a discussion on self-fulfilling prophecies, right? How names set frames and, and things like that. And they were getting right into it at this stage. They'd also learned that, um, you know, what happens in that room for me as a, as a psychologist stays in that room with a the discussion. They can talk however they want. Anyway, lunchtime or just before lunchtime, their superintendent, um, breezes into the room, no knocking, no, no, just breezes into the room, shouts across the room, so Clive, how are my knuckle draggers doing? Mm. And I'm thinking, why are these guys, when they come into a room, potentially to learn some good new stuff, do they sit there with folded arms, look at the table, not wanting to share anything with me at that stage? Um, the mistrust was palpable. And so I answered this question. 
And I said, well, when they were first here, they had fallen to your level of expectation, but now they're soaring way past it. Oh, and nice under, work, Clive. Yeah. Um, you know, the, talking about um, psychological health and safety, I, I do get asked occasionally, well, what's just one thing we can do? Just one thing we can do straight away. And my flippant response, guys, like my flippant response would be, stop hiring sociopaths. That's mm. a really good answer. Yeah. Now this, this comes down to that problem, right? Where people are promoted into leadership positions because they're technically good. Um, but then they've got no, no response or they should not be a leader. They, sh they just shouldn't be. Yeah. They just should not be anywhere near people, frankly. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're good at, um, sycophantic type behaviors that, um, endear them to their superiors, but, um, not not so much to the people who they view as as being below them in the in the social hierarchy. Yeah, it's it's a different skill set. Um, yeah, obviously, uh, and not everyone, even with the copious amounts of line manager training, are, are ever going to be a good people leader. Mm. So, and look, there was there was some pushback on this recently. I noticed um, um, there was an article on LinkedIn about this. I'm a firm believer in exactly what you're saying, Jason. In that, um, by the way, I, I have been criticised in the past for seemingly to um, downplay technical skills. I don't think I do. I, 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 technical skills are incredibly important. Uh, nevertheless, you can have somebody who is technically brilliant and a sociopath, um, or even if they're not a sociopath, just literally lacking the skills they need to, to actually create engagement. And, and often, by the way, that is not their fault. Um, in mining, oil and gas, um, particularly if there's a mining boom on, all of a sudden companies need um, to, to get a whole bunch of frontline leaders. And historically, what they have done is recruit people from you know, the front line. And often the criteria they use, of course, is not are they great with people, are they great leaders? It's usually because they were bloody good operators. They were really good on the tools. And it's now it's like they have this assumption because we've made them a leader, uh, automatically, magically, through osmosis, somehow they've, they've also grown the skills they need to be able to run a really good toolbox talk or a status shift meeting and really bring their, their guys on the journey. And frankly, they often they don't. Um, and that is not their fault. The least, um, I believe, organisations can do is if they're going to recruit people into leadership roles, give them what they need. Mm. Now, you can do that with many, many people. You can give them the skills they need. You cannot do that with sociopaths. <laughs> no workshop I run is ever going to make a sociopath a leader who can build trust. And, uh, yeah, first step, get rid of them or just don't employ them in the first place. Yeah. So let, let's say, though, we have um, a leader who finds themselves in a situation where there is a lot of uh, active mistrust. Um, what are some things perhaps that they could do to, to overcome that situation and build more of a culture of, of trust and care? Yeah, brilliant. And look, the second part of the book is really, that, that's what that is all about. But let me summarise. The first, first and foremost, the, the, the best thing they can do, and as well as the research, by the way, um, my informal research has been asking teams this for the last 20 years. Uh, teams that have high trust, teams that have low trust. And I'll say, what, what is it you need most from your leaders for you to be able to trust them? And the number one response would, would be very simply, listen. Come and get, actually just come and listen to us. Um, and so for me, that would be the big one. Now, to be able to listen to them, of course, you, you've, got to be a, you've got to be out there or at least you've got to bring them in. So that's the other thing I would suggest. Make this a formal part of your work. Design work around this. Um, there's very little designed in work, in my opinion, around psychological health and safety. Uh, we'll do that with physical safety. You know, we'll put guards in place and we'll do whatever we can. We tend not to design work around this. And so literally, um, maybe once a month, bring people in and ask them, and I've got a particular format I use for this when I work with organisations. I, I literally call it the Stockdale Paradox, which other people have heard of, but it's a great thing that leaders can do. Invite their people in to talk about the brutal facts. Now, the first session might be quiet, right? The first session you might bring them in and they think, tell you the brutal facts, tell you what's really going on. Yeah, right, that's going to happen. Uh, in other words, we need to let our, our teams know that we want that. We actually want to know what's going on. And I, I spend a bit of time working with teams to know that when they share that, it needs to be benevolent in nature. That is not about personalising somebody, giving somebody a hard time. It's literally sharing what's going on for them, 
what they need to be able to do their jobs and um, work safely and well. Um, and so leaders, again, need to not just hear that, but they need to demonstrate that they've heard that. Um, and then they, they need to take action. And if for whatever reason they cannot take the action they'd like to take, they also need to talk about why that is. It's uh, a well-informed workplace. When Patrick Hudson drew up his stages of cultural maturity, one of the hallmarks for him in that was uh, a well-informed workforce. And I've got a, just a little bit of an issue with that. I think that is important, but that still infers top-down information given. I've sort of turned it around a little bit. It's both ways. We, we don't need it, um, just that. We need a, a management team that is well-informed by the workforce so that we know what's going on. So just fundamentals, Jason and Joel, bring your people in, listen to them. But to do that well again, you've got to let them know that is safe to do so. And I've seen some companies who've had a crack at the, um, let's start this, let's build trust, let's build psychological health and safety through listening. They've brought their crews in, their crews have actually named a few things that are not right, and then the leaders actually have gotten defensive. Mm. And in the room, they say, it's not really like that. You're, you're misinterpreting what's going on. No, <laughs> let's just shut them, shut them down completely. You listen. You just listen. And look, as you as you guys know, there's a whole skill set behind listening in, in itself. That is a core skill, I think, for creating, for people wanting to create uh, psychological health and safety. But that's at least that's where I'd start, by really helping team leaders and managers to become brilliant. Uh, to, to, if you're going to do anything aggressively, listen aggressively. Uh, listen with huge intent. But you've made a really good point there as well, Clive. You need to have the time and space to do it and invite people to share what they think rather than waiting for them to, you know, find an opportunity to tell you that something's not right. And I think that's where um, a lot of companies think they're doing psych health and safety. Oh, no one's reported that they're overworked. Um, well, have you asked them? You know, so you, you need that You need that time. And until I think companies, you know, give line managers or, or, or senior leaders um, you know, more um, ammunition and time and resources to do this properly. It's, it's just going to get lip service and we're not going to actually see any, um, you know, change in this area. Totally. And look, it may start off, that first meeting might be quite quiet mm. um, because, you know, who wants to be the first one to speak anyway? And look, they're going to need some evidence that it is safe, but where leaders can really, you know, really good leaders, what they can do here is just let that first session anything that is said really hear it and thank people for actually doing that let them know that's what we want the second one you'll get more people speaking up and when you've done that consistently and well literally everybody feels engaged and that's much more powerful than just going out and having one conversation with one person there's power in that group to actually share each other's experience and to learn off other people's experience and it works every time if it's led well yeah well what value do you think um, companies could obtain, do you think, from, you know, if they don't have leaders with those facilitation skills to bring in an external facilitator to assist with that? Absolutely. Uh, and again, not, not all organisations have those sorts of people with those sorts of skill sets. Mm. For them, it, it is important to, to bring in um, people with not just the skill set in, in listening, but how to actually facilitate that skill development in other people. That's a whole other set of skills. Yeah. Um, and again, this is, I think, where um, really good org psychs, really good clean psychs um, can play a very good role. Yeah. Yeah. That's some great advice, Clive, and some really practical advice that I think our listeners will be able to, to take away and hopefully start um, acting on fairly easily because it doesn't really require a huge investment. It's just about um, carving out some time, you know, once a month to talk to their people. And that's, you know, that's something that everybody can start to do. Have you got time for one more brief example? Go for it. Just into, we're talking about time here. Let me tell you where leaders already do spend time. Uh, and again, I won't name the company or anything, but this is, this is many companies, right? They have KPIs around doing safety walks, right? which by the way, probably more accurately should be called unsafety walks because really that's what they're out there looking for. Uh, there was a company recently, they've got a KPI to do eight safety walks a month, which is essentially two a week. Uh, none of them actually enjoy doing them. They don't like doing them at all. But anyway, so what they tend to do, all of them, is leave it towards the end of the month 
And so when you get towards the end of the month, there's all of the leaders out there <laughs> cramming in all of these safety rules. The workforce know they're coming. It's month after month. And so they're saying, you know, tidy up people, tidy up, get, get it sorted. So they're not getting good data anyway. But they're taking that level of time. But they're out there looking for stuff that's not good. They got their tick sheets. And then they wonder why they're known as the safety police. And I say, and I say this flippantly, but I kind of mean it. I'm not a big fan of KPIs on that, by the way. I'm not a fan of KPIs in safety generally, frankly. Here's a KPI for you. How about a KPI of um, what is the percentage of your employees' children's names that you actually know? What about that as a KPI? And again, if it's 80 or 90%, what does that also suggest they have actually been doing? Well, they've been out there, of course, having conversa real conversations about how people are traveling. And to me, that would be way more worthwhile. But of course, things being the way they are, it might just be that turns into a shortcut too. I go out there with one conversation, right, tell me your kids' names. And <laughs> very quickly. So, but the, the heart of what I'm saying here, I think it is, is the valid point. Go Instead of calling it a safety walk and having KPIs, you've got, you make the time to do that. How about you just go for a walk? And while you're walking, have a chat about people, ask them what they need. Ask them, do they get what they need? What, how can leaders actually help them to, to work better? Um, doesn't have to be about safety all the time, but just engage with them adult to adult, human being to human being. That can go a long way in, in creating trust. Mm. Um, so Jason was talking a little bit earlier about, um, you know, how important it is to, to do the front end work in um, sort of developing um, trust within the workforce and doing the consultation around why why are we doing this and, and what is it going to look like for you um, when it comes to um, particularly um, sort of a, a psych hazard identification survey or, or something like that. Um, so when we're talking about this, you know, things like trust and care in relation to that, um, what would you suggest for organisations sort of thinking about taking on this type of an approach? Yeah, I mean, it can be a very, very worthwhile pursuit. It's an avenue, once again, any avenue you can take that brings your people in to engage them, to get their, their thoughts and ideas is, is, is you know, it's, it's a great intent. But again, unless we've actually got um, sufficient levels of trust or at least reduced mistrust, um, it's unlikely people are going to share at a very authentic level anyway. So I still think it's worth, the worthwhile investment for me always before you do any sort of, um, major um, intervention or rollout is to just have a look at that first. Um, again, back to the core things we just talked about, going out there, just listening, asking great questions. Uh, in the book, I talk about, um, and this is the model supported in the, in the uh, org psych literature, three main components that leaders need to demonstrate consistently. And I think this is just a great question for leaders to ask themselves. Do we do these three things consistently? In fact, do we have these three things? Uh, three main factors. The first factor is integrity. There's no trust without a consistent demonstration of integrity. In other words, doing what we said we would do. Or if we can't for whatever reason, because I know plans change, at least again, informing the workforce, this is why we can't do it. So integrity is a core component. The second component to build trust, and we need all three, by the way, is ability or competence. And all that means is our leaders need to demonstrate they are good at what they need to be good at. It doesn't mean they have to be good at everything. Nobody is. But they need to demonstrate that they're good at what they need to be good at. So the third factor is what the academics call benevolence. Um, love academics, hey? benevolence, mm. four syllables. All right, it just means care. Uh, in other words, are we able, do we demonstrate care? Now, you need all three consistently to build that level of trust. Uh, what I've noticed is integrity is kind of a character thing, right? And that's more of a personality thing. You kind of got that or you don't. I believe you can improve on it uh, through reality checks. Um, competence or ability, including technical skills. Uh, we need our people to have that, our leaders to have that. It's the third one that's been the main focus area for me. And this is where the most work has been done with our clients and where the name of the program came from, incidentally. People often see the care factor and immediately think no, that's going to be too soft for our organisation because hey, our guys are macho. You know, we can't be talking about care and stuff like that. All it means is this, the, uh, while we need all three of those factors to create the environment for a survey or before a survey, 
Um, the three factors are important, but integrity stands out as the, the, the most important in creating trust in the first place. And I think that makes intuitive sense to most people. You do that. Here's the interesting bit, to overcome mistrust, which is a different thing, right? To overcome mistrust, the three, the one of the three factors there that stands out is actually that care factor, that benevolence factor. And to what degree the workforce perceive their management actually do care about them. And the thing I noticed the most in my 20 years was that is actually the one that companies and leaders are struggling with the most. And one of the key surveys I do with leaders is, um, every workshop I do this, I get leaders in a room to put their hand up if they believe in general, leaders do care about their teams. And frankly, most hands will go up. And uh, I believe, I, I genuinely believe that. Most people, their leaders do care about their teams. They want them to be safe. They want them to be well. There's always psychopaths, as we discussed earlier, who, who actually don't really care at all. But most leaders actually do care about their teams. The second question though I ask is put your hand up again if you believe that in general, leaders are very good at demonstrating care to their people. And what's really interesting there is very few hands go up. And this to me is the disconnect. It's not that leaders don't care, they generally do. Our program isn't about getting leaders to care more, that's lame. Um, where, that, where the disconnect is, they, they're not very good or they're unwilling or they think it's too, well, not macho enough to demonstrate care to their crews. And uh, then the rest of that is really, well, what does that actually look like? What does it mean to demonstrate care? And again, you go back to the workforce. How do you know you cared about it? They listen to us. It's the core stuff. Not only do they listen to us, they ask us what they need and they'll let us know if they can do that and to what degree. Um, there are some, they're just acts of genuine benevolence. And genuine benevolence is not throwing some sort of barbecue after 90 days incident free. That's not, it seems to be caring, but that's not what the workforce wants. They know that's just yeah, a platitude really. Demonstrating care is the challenging bit for many leaders. Yeah. Um, so do you have some some suggestions for leaders and how they can actually, you know, what are some, I guess, three three tips that they can take away to start demonstrating care? Well, look, the main ones that I'd recommend are ones we've already touched on. Uh, and that is, first up, um, what is the fundamental assumption that you have about your team? And, you know, be authentic in that too. And if you tend to fall into, and I think most leaders do at some time, that our people are the problem. Uh, regardless of your positive intent, that's going to flavour all of your communications. That's going to flavour all of your actions. What is a leadership team? How can we actually get... What does it look like when we change that fundamental assumption to our people are actually the solution? What policies and procedures could actually stem from that? Because most leadership teams want policies and procedures. So a little bit more difficult for me in psych health and safety because this is not a one size fits all thing. Um, different people do, you know, respond to different ways. But so just fundamentally changing the assumptions we have about leadership and about our teams. People, our people are the solution. That will tend to drive, again, other things we've spoken about, getting out there and asking them individually and collectively, what is it you need? And I, I do say individually because what one person needs is not necessarily what the other person needs. There's room for individual, uh, individuality in that too. Uh, fly in, fly out mining, for example, has been a bugbear of mine for ages, uh, in a sense. Uh, the work uh, mining companies, I know they did this. They, they, uh, one of the companies after our program said, right, let's survey the workforce, right? Let's survey them on the length of roster, fly in, fly out. And the vast majority of the people responded, um, we, we don't want unequal rosters. You know, if it's one and one, fine. If it's two and two, that's fine. They don't want three and one, for example. And so they did all that. And then the companies came back and looked at what that would cost and just threw it away straight away. Why would you ask the question? Hmm. You know, uh, other people, by the way, they're fine with this three and one roster, but you guys would, would probably know the research on, in terms of psychological health and well-being. We know very clearly from the research that the more unequal the roster, the higher degree of mental health challenges and the higher the suicide rate, frankly. Um, mining companies know this. They deny it, but they know this. Why would you ask that question? So the other thing I'd say is only ask questions that you're prepared to hear the answers to. Be authentic in that. 
authentic leadership. Don't bullshit people. Don't just do surveys because you want to be seen to be surveying the workforce. What's the intent behind your survey? Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to make changes? And so a lot of it comes down to those fundamental assumptions of why are you doing this? Wonderful. Great advice there. Thanks, Clive. Yeah, um, Clive, you obviously have this amazing wealth of experience and I think um, your passion for bringing, you know, care to the the front is is to be admired. It's it's really great and uh, it does seem to be the missing piece from definitely from what I've observed uh, on visits to many mine sites. Um, but yeah, it, it'd be great to see um, more people, you know, adopt, I guess, what you talk about in your book and, and through your, your programs. So um, with that in mind and, and some of the things that you shared with us about your previous work over the last 10 to 20 years, uh, what are your hopes for the future of workplace mental health then? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one of them is that more people listen to podcasts like yours. All right. And so you had um, um, Jennifer on, on one of your podcasts recently. Man, that was great stuff. There's such a wealth of knowledge and experience in that arena. And again, um, my hope is that psychological health and safety it becomes, unlike its physical counterpart to a degree, that it, it, it is and remains evidence-based. That we do what we know works through research, not because it's a nice platitude or it's a nice thing to say. So much of physical safety is... Um, we just do what everybody else does, right? And, and it's um, we say all the nice things, but there's nothing behind it a lot of the time. I would hate to see psych health and safety go down a similar route where we, you know, the fruit bowl thing that we spoke of earlier and gym memberships. Let's have a look what actually does work. Let's have a look what predicts high levels of um, psychological health and safety. What predicts that? And what predicts the opposite? And, and work based on the research, not based on platitudes and just being nice. Um, so that's my main hope. Um, second hope for the future in psych health and safety would be that organisations actually intrinsically have the people who, who are good at it, who understand it, to bring in um, and, and actually employ uh, org psychs, clin psychs, who can actually help to roll this stuff within. Don't, don't have people like me come in. Uh, if, if it's intrinsic, you, you're saying to the workforce straight away, we have the resources here to be able to be really good at this stuff. Um, so, yeah, I hope it becomes that we, we bring in the necessary people to, to do a very good job of this, just like we bring in safety experts for physical safety. So, Clive, yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I was having a conversation with Joel the other day. And uh, we're talking about how in Australia, about one in 10 of our serious um, health and safety claims or injury claims in Australia uh, are due to psychological injuries. So it would make sense then, right? If you had 10 safety professionals working in an organization, then at least one of them would be dedicated to, you know, understanding and, and managing psych hazards. Absolutely. Um, again, not to finish on a grim note, but in Australia, um, we lose a construction worker to suicide every second day. Mm. If that was physical, so if, they were, if we were losing that many due to physical causes, there would be complete outcry, right? Um, yeah, let's get people in who actually um, can help organisations to actually deal with that. So, uh, yeah, so why it might seem easier to get an external consultant in, uh, sometimes just having that internal resource, uh, you know, might be a lot better for an organisation, particularly if you've already got a established health and safety team. All right, Clive, um, we've got, hopefully lots of listeners who are interested in working in this field of, of psych health and safety. And we, um, we want to give them all of the encouragement that we can. So do you have some words of wisdom or, or advice that you'd like to offer them? I'm always challenged with this one only because it's hard to do that without projecting my own sort of journey on, onto other people and everybody's journey is different. Um, I would say in, in this field, again, we've spoken about this, those, those counseling, those clinical skills, I think, are vital. Develop, becoming a really good listener, I think, is going to be um, hugely important for anybody in the field. Um, and I, I'd also say don't be afraid to rock the boat. Um, certainly been happy to do that in the physical safety side. I, I think people rocking the boat has helped us to actually shift um, thinking so yeah, get in there, rock the boat and be a really good listener. Fantastic advice, Clive. And I think um, I can probably speak for most of our listeners and say that we're, we're glad that you went down the psychology route rather than just the counselling route because you've been a great advocate for 
uh, evidence-based practice, um, certainly for as long as I've known you and I imagine well before that as well. Thank you, appreciate that. Well, um, Clive, it's been amazing having you on today. Um, yeah, again, your wealth of experience is, is fantastic. And, uh, you know, we, we love that you like saying it how it is. There's, there's not enough provocateurs out there. <laughs> so uh, there can never be enough, I think, to really get people out of the, uh, the normal that they're in. So thank you so much for coming along. Now, um, for our listeners, thank you for tuning into this uh, extra long episode with Clive. Um, hopefully, we're able to get rid of all of the technical issues that we had during this podcast, and you will not know until I've actually just mentioned right now that we had technical issues in this podcast episode. Uh, but Clive has been very, very good at persevering with us, so thanks again, Clive. Uh, for those of you who do want to check out um, the video of this, hopefully we're able to stitch it together, um, you'll be able to find that on the Flourish DX YouTube channel. Um, we also like to post uh, clips, um, the little golden nuggets, and Joel's going to have a number to choose from, I think, today, yep. um, uh, onto our LinkedIn Flourish DX page. So please check them out there. And you'll find that Joel and I and, and also Clive are also very active on, on LinkedIn. So feel free to follow us or send us a connection request. Uh, but that's it, listeners, for, for today. Thank you again and catch you next episode. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.